Anyone know what that is? That's music to my ears. That's another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Shopify makes it simple to sell to anyone from anywhere. Whether you're selling shirts or sandals, start selling with Shopify and join the platform simplifying commerce for millions of businesses worldwide. With Shopify, you'll customize your online store to your brand, discover new customers, and build relationships that will keep them coming back. Shopify covers all the sales channels to successfully grow your business, from an in-person POS system to an all-in-one e-commerce platform, even across social media platforms like TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram. And thanks to 24-7 support and free on-demand business courses, Shopify is here to help you succeed every step of the way. It's how every minute, new sellers around the world make their first sale with Shopify. And you can do it too. I love how Shopify makes it simple for anyone to sell their products anywhere. Whether they're eBooks or earrings, Shopify simplifies starting and running your own successful business. When you're ready to take your idea to the world, do it with Shopify, the commerce platform powering millions of businesses down the street and around the globe. Now it's your turn to try Shopify for free and start selling anywhere. So sign up for a free trial at shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite. Go to shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite, to start selling online today. Shopify.com slash c-suite. You're listening to Thinking Outside the Bud, where we speak with entrepreneurs, investors, thought leaders, researchers, advocates, and policymakers who are finding new and exciting ways for cannabis to positively impact business, society, and culture. And now, here is your host, business coach, Bruce Eckfeldt. Are you a CEO looking to scale your company faster and easier? Check out Thrive Roundtable. Thrive combines a moderated peer group mastermind, expert one-on-one coaching, access to proven growth tools, and a 24-7 support community. Created by Inc. award-winning CEO and certified scaling-up business coach Bruce Eckfeldt, Thrive will help you grow your business more quickly and with less drama. For details on the program, visit Eckfeldt.com slash Thrive. That's E-C-K-F-E-L-D-T dot Slash thrive. Welcome, everyone. This is Thinking Outside the Bud. I'm Bruce Eckfeld. I'm your host. And our guest today is Hugh O'Byrne, and he is president of the New Jersey Cannabis Industry Association. We're going to talk to him a little bit about what has been happening in cannabis just prior to COVID. We're going to talk a little bit about COVID-19 and how uh, coronavirus is impacting things, and then talk a little bit about how this is really going to shape the industry, what is likely to happen both from a demand side, from an industry side, where we see some of these businesses potentially going, what might be happening with regulation. A lot of fascinating things. Obviously, you know, it's a horrible situation we're in with the pandemic impacting really worldwide. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's tragic what, what is going on. And obviously, everyone is dealing with it. And we want to kind of figure out what is this? How is this going to impact things? That's really the conversation we're going to have today. Obviously, uh, a lot of this is going to be sort of speculative, <laughs> or at least, you know, making hopefully reasonably educated guesses. But I think it'd be an interesting one. And he was in a great position with his knowledge about the industry, his insights into businesses, insights into regulatory kind of dynamics that have been going on and how that might 
play out. So I'm excited to have this. With that, Hugh, welcome to the program. Thanks, Bruce. Pleasure. Yeah. So why don't we do just a little bit of the things that you think are really kind of important just leading up to, you know, we're recording this mid-April here. So uh, beginning of 2020, we had a, a lot of kind of changes in the cannabis industry and the markets and kind of pricing some of these companies. And, you know, there's a lot of flux, I guess I would say, coming into this. I would say, what, what do you think are the key things to know there? I think that's probably the first conversation we have. But before we actually dig into that, give us a little sense of your background. And, you know, you're involved in the New Jersey Cannabis Industry Association. How did you get into cannabis? What's been your kind of role in the cannabis industry today? So I actually got involved with cannabis advocacy in 1989 uh, when I turned 18 and stayed involved with it peripherally. Through college, I was more involved in Massachusetts, where I hail from. I didn't, uh, obviously, there's no cannabis legal regulated cannabis industry to be a part of at that time. So I, I had a, a sort of a traditional Wall Street career. I was an attorney with a large Wall Street law firm and then became an attorney with um, in Atlanta, Georgia. I, I sought industries that I could be a part of that were subject to unusual or large amounts of regulatory activity. Mm-hmm. So I found in those cases that when you see the public sector trying to grapple with something in the private sector that is permissible but troubling, that there's a lot of interest to be had there. So I always sort of drove my, and maybe, maybe that went back to sort of my interest in cannabis as I find yeah. Thought that look, our response to cannabis has been criminal and insane, insane criminality in the United States for so long. And when I emerged, I eventually became the general counsel of the company. Then we went on the stock market, we sold the company. And I came out in bed and lo and behold, that was December of 2015 when I came out of that world, public company world, and looked around and the cannabis industry was starting to really accelerate here on the East Coast. And I'd been watching it grow its initial steps in the 1990s in California. And I really thought that that would be two, two things. One, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a good thing. I think it is a public good that there is a cannabis industry and that there is a public acceptance for regulated cannabis. I think it's an unqualified good that we have that in the United States. I think freedom, I think it's good for reducing criminality. I think it's good for public safety. And I think there's also significant wellness goods that have been uncovered through this process that have very much helped a great many people in their day-to-day lives. So I thought, okay, this is great. The plant has proven itself to be far more beneficial than I ever thought back in 1989 or in the 1990s. And I think that goes for everyone. So we get to this point, I I got involved early in the Pennsylvania process in 2016. The first Pennsylvania process was a part of a license there for a multi-state operator. We were successful in that process, got very interested in, well, having to deal through a regulatory application process, a very intensive one, got really interested in how the public sector was starting to wrestle with this good. Like it, it was good, but they didn't know quite how to go about, or they weren't certain about how to go about bringing it into a comfortable role in our communities. And so I was like, okay, great. I'm really interested in being a part of that and to figure that out. I was asked by the founder of the New Jersey Cannabis Industry Association in 2017, uh, that as it was being formed, to be a part of that. A New Jersey local, live in Princeton, New Jersey now for about, uh, you know, 11 years, 12 years, and have been involved with New Jersey Matters and that I had cannabis experience in Pennsylvania and some thoughts about it. Otherwise, I joined the board of the NJCIA in its inception in June of the uh, 17. The founder went on to become, to be tapped to be the chief of staff, first chief of staff for uh, incoming uh, New Jersey Governor Murphy, 
who had a definite cannabis agenda, very pro-cannabis agenda, both medically and as well as adult use. And I was asked to take over the role of president. And the goal that we had at the NJCIA was an interesting one. Uh, typically, trade associations follow uh, the trade. It's, uh, it's the trade that has come about or it's been in place and the industry associations kind of are there to service the in-place industry. Well, in, in, in the cannabis industry, the car's a little bit before the horse. We had uh, a very small industry in New Jersey that was laboring under some really difficult regulations. And we were about to open that up dramatically. So the idea was, well, let's have a trade association and understand that the role of the trade association is going to be sort of high level industry focused advocacy, sort of the how of regulated industry would be our focus. And with that, from the private sector that we hailed from, we would try and gather together the aspirational industry or the those companies that would seek to be a part of New Jersey that have had experience throughout North America. Of course, throughout all conversations with cannabis and very difficult for our minds, they're used to unitary markets. There's really each state is its own market, its own set of regulations, its own set of players. Uh, even if the players have the same names, quite often behave and have to behave differently yeah. in places. So gathering all that together, the idea was let's try and come up uh, with system public stakeholders in New Jersey and their regulatory and legislative process with getting a gold standard environment. Try to avoid the sins of past and the mistakes of other jurisdictions and learn from them and come up with something that could uh, could roll out fruitfully. I think now that we're we're looking at, at a transition point for both the industry, the industry association, and the state's market, I think that we can be very proud of the role that we've had and be very proud of the way that the state has put into place the predicates for a great industry, but be annoyed by the fact that just, you know, life gets in the way, things move far more slowly, there are far more other incidents and, and issues that come up that the reality is lagging behind the promise. But as far as problems go, I'll take that. Yes. Uh, we have a great medical law. We didn't get adult use done. No, but we will. And yeah. got put on ballot. we will get it done. And we've already did a really good test run of some really great legislation. Not perfect. A regulation is not perfect, but, you know, find me perfect. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. So, but we have really great trajectory here. Yeah. And that trajectory compels the future. The when that compelling actually sees fruit is what we're stuck with right now. And then, of course, two events started to happen. And I, I think you were getting a little bit at that. Yeah. yeah. Let's talk about the things you you have seen kind of happen in the last, you know, several months kind of leading up to the COVID crisis uh, that, that are really kind of affecting how things are playing out now. Um, you, you mentioned kind of the, you know, how the, the markets were reacting to some of the, the companies and the prices and the stocks. Give me a little sense of what you've seen about the last several months that is really kind of impacting what's happening today. Yeah. I, and I think it's really important. I think many of the things that from like an investor point of view or a public public information point of view that, that people think about when they look at the national and even North American cannabis industry is driven by the phenomena that took place last year before pre-COVID and they're playing themselves out now. And I, I think what we saw that was, it was heat off by two events uh, that were not due to the industry of the market. So I guess let's set the stage. The overall marketplace has been robust and growing. Cannabis from a consumption point of view has been, as predicted, growing. Demand has been growing. At the same time, we had a poorly rolled out. Now, this is to blame the public sector primarily. Poor rollout of adult use in Canada and a poor rollout of adult use in California. That created, I think, some noise as companies were starting and as those markets that those rollouts started to hurt markets that were planning, they were hurting companies planning for a more robust rollout. So by kind of messing up the rollout or delaying its full sort of surge, it's a popular word these days, we saw investors start 
to get the markets, the equity markets in Canada, the U.S. companies, as well as Canadian companies were taking advantage of, started to dry up, right? I mean, people really just started to say, okay, the performance isn't there. It's not what we rejected. There was a turn away from that. And then that reality started to mean that companies found themselves at a lack of, of cash sources that they were used to going to for large expansion plans. And, and both in the United States and Canada, companies really thought in terms of expansion and thought and investors thought in terms of, you know, the more marketplace or the more licensing that you have, particularly in constrained license, the more market share that'll turn into. And that sort of was a proxy for the future value of the company. So companies were on these huge M&A tears. They were also applying every time there was an application going up. They found themselves all of a sudden in a situation where they had been expanding rapidly. The expansion hadn't been turning into operations in many places. And in many places that they were expanding into, the operations were lagging behind sort of the premier adult use market states or premier medical market states. And these were really placeholders for the future expected growth as the world goes to adult use or the country goes to adult use or loosened medical. But it's expensive. It's expensive placeholders and the build outs are expensive. I mean, you've got to worry about what you wish for. Get it. If you wish for a highly constrained market and you get one of the licenses there, well, the costs of building anything out is monumental. And then when the cash that you've been used to or the, the equity that you are used to utilizing to underwrite your expansion goes away and you have a lot of overhead, you start to move to debt. And then that becomes sort of problematic. It's really sort of annoying because at the same time, you're seeing increases in revenue. Marketplaces are robust and as new marketplaces come online like, like Illinois did, a massive growth. But it just goes to show that the previous way the companies were rewarded by investors for expansion has changed yeah. and were left kind of holding the bag. And even yeah. though sales were growing in many, many, many places, they had were so far over the skis that they're actually suffering quite a bit. COVID comes on. So I think that's that's where we're at. So we're looking at some of the yeah. cannabis turbulence in the industry, when the industry names that are having these really a lagging effect of, the, of that phenomenon. Yeah. Yeah. We just have so many of these companies with um, going into, you know, end of January, beginning of February with these kind of difficult balance sheets, you know, they, the operational costs are more than they anticipated. The sales aren't quite there. They're, you know, having to fund operations with available capital, you know, and then COVID comes along and, you know, r- kind of upends the market. Give us a sense of how you've seen the kind of confluence of kind of the financial situation, the market situation of these companies. Now COVID coming along, how have these forces uh, or these these two confluences come together to uh, create the situation we're in now? Yeah, I think that, that COVID has turned out more or less to be a shot in the arm for the industry, right? I mean, sales have jumped in many, many of the states. Consumer demand has been strong. Hopefully it will remain strong I and mean, everything. Who knows where we go with COVID? But what, what gives it, this is two things that we want to want to say is very optimistic and hopeful for the marketplace in general is that in a downtime, in an economic panic here, time that we see people are still buying cannabis in large amounts uh, so far. And so demand remains strong. And in negative times, people will still, you know, go go there like alcohol sales, etc. So, so that's a, a positive proof of putting that, that, cons- that consumer demand remains strong. It isn't, right? It, it remains strong. In fact, if, if anything, it grows in, in, in the face of global adversity. All right, that's one. The, the second thing that is very helpful has been the response of the public sector. Now, the federal response has been sucky, for lack of better word. I mean, cannabis industries have been X'd out the PPP program and other federal relief programs for small businesses, right? Small business loans. And that's that, that, that is a problem. And COVID is affecting the supply chain because it affects workers, right? I mean, it, it, it 
it, it causes fear and, and it makes it makes life difficult and more costly to operate from the supply side, even though the demand side has grown quite a, quite a bit. And that leads to headaches of a variety of sources. Uh, but the states fundamentally, and I think this is the proof, proof of the pudding, when this crisis happened, the states, at least with medical cannabis, said, and quite often with adult use, the states said these were essential industries and that we're going to stand behind them. And that was a big move. That was a big tell as to the public as well as political acceptance for cannabis in the community, at least insofar as with regard to the, the realm of, of cannabis legislation and regulation, which is the states. That's impressive. And that should be uh, heartening that there is this sort of robust support for the industry where it is present. Do you, How much do you think this is support of the industry in terms of seeing the, the importance of cannabis from a sort of public health point of view or a public importance point of view versus, you know, revenue stream taxation point of view? You know, I know a lot of these states are looking at, you know, cannabis as being a big, big source. Cannabis taxation is a big source of revenue. I mean, I guess, what, what do you think the, the balance is between those or what do you think the motivating factor is in terms I, of the I, state's actions? Yeah, yeah. I think, I think I'll go with our better angels on medical. I think, I think with medical, very few states have made out like bandits on medical taxation. It's, you know, it hasn't been, it hasn't been a gigantic income generator lately on the medical side. And, and I think that the, the public sectors in these states have through having medical programs in their states and supervising those programs, both from a patient supervision point of view, as well as from an industry point of view, actually recognize that, yeah, no, this is, uh, this is real. This is people are depending upon this for their health in large respect. And, and that's similar to what we see with the growing acceptance of cannabis among medical. So I think with the medical realm, that's clearly the case. The states are, are doing it for the right reason. On the adult use, I think that states there, uh, we could be, take the cynical role and be like, yeah, they are making money. And this is an area where, you know, just like alcohol, they tend to make outsized uh, tax revenue rather. That's fine. Mm-hmm. That's fine. There's also a concern that if you don't continue to allow the regulated market, now, not all states have allowed the adult use market to see uh, Massachusetts, yeah. but there, there's a view that like, okay, well, look, if we shut down that market, especially in the realm of cannabis, there's a gigantic still black market. Yeah, available. Exactly. So we're just going to drive people into the black market, which is one, retrograde and supporting black market, but two, is really bad for social distancing because one of the better parts about regulation in general is that regulated entities try to follow the regulations most of the time. Yeah. Uh, try and follow them zealously. Yeah. Uh, black market, not so much. So by, by having regulated cannabis, we know that people will be making purchases in a way where the entities are following the social distancing guidelines that are in place. And if you don't have that, well, you're not going to get as much that those sales are going to move into a realm that you can bet will not have the same type of COVID prevention measures in place. Yeah. So yeah. Well, it's going to make it harder in the future too. I mean, it, if people get back into the black market, then, you know, you were just going to, we're going to unwind this, you know, and it's going to take, you know, months, quarters, years to kind of get it back to where it is now. So I think, keep, you know, putting it in. Well, and, and also the, also the adult use market in many states is very, would be, I think, I think would be extremely sensitive to being shut down. It's already expensive if they don't also have a medical program. And, but it, it's also, it, it's sort of extremely expensive to run, particularly on the retail side, right? A, a cannabis industry, a cannabis taxation, et cetera. Being shut down for any length of time, I would really worry about the solvency of, of the operations in those areas. And then if they go away, then like you said, we've gone the wrong direction. We've put people into black market relationships that now we're going to have to entice them away from all over again. Yeah. 
for, for the states, I think it's a no-brainer, right? It is a good thing to do, both from COVID protection and also for a continuation of the program of eradicating the black mark. And it is also a lucrative goal in a time when most, uh, when you shut down the rest of sales, states are going to be hurting. So it's sort of a no-brainer and a win-win. I'm surprised, I was surprised in Massachusetts' decision. Yeah, I think everyone knows. So we're kind of in this situation. Cannabis is declared essential business and central service. They're staying open for the most part, you know, albeit with the social distancing kind of requirements and limited contact and, and I mean, supply chain issues, you know, but it is it is open for business. Cannabis is open for business. How do you see this kind of playing out in the coming months, quarters in terms of kind of the longer term impact on the industry, you know, from, um, you know, how the industry might be shaped uh, from a regulatory point of view, what might be happening, the economics of the businesses themselves, you know, capital markets. What are the big things that you would anticipate, you know, over the next 12, 24 months that are going to kind of change the way or, or shape the way the cannabis market plays out? Yeah. So I guess the assumptions behind my responses entails that we're not going to be in a lockdown for many more months. That I don't know what happens as if, if we go another month in a lockdown, uh, just generally speaking in the US. But but let's say that we kind of come out. I'm not saying we're going to first. So, so that's one. The other assumption is we're not going back to normal. So it's not like we're going to turn on the ghost switch and everything's going to. What I have seen is the cannabis industry by being being able to stay open in this context has shown itself generally to be a responsible partner to a state in a time of crisis. And I think that 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 really helps generally and will really help solidify the cannabis marketplace with regulators and will see that the cannabis industry and the cannabis marketplace in general will start, I believe, to get more of the benefit of the doubt in places where maybe they don't enjoy it as much from regulators. And I think that this one of the things that I've seen in a number of places that regulators, in order to, to comply with social distancing, yet keep this essential service open, have had to relax some of the strictures on the cannabis industry. For instance, curbside pickup. Some states have uh, implemented delivery, home delivery, which they hadn't before, or they had been reticent about rolling out or delayed in rolling out, have begun rolling these things out because, of course, COVID's the bigger threat than some sort of fear of diversion or whatever it was for that, that stopped these things. And by the cannabis industry living up to this so, so by being granted the ability to operate with less of the traditional strictures by having to operate with these newer strictures from COVID and being able to do that well, I could see some of this relaxation over time being a regulatory relaxation being solidified over time. And that, that would be beneficial because there's a lot of costs that go with the over-regulation that we see in a lot of states. So I think that moving forward, we'll see a reduction because what we've been able to beta test in a number of states, parts of the supply chain that we haven't before, for instance, delivery or a more relaxed sales process. If those remain in place, then we're going to see a greater acceptance of, of cannabis in general. We'll see better economics, we'll see, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So by the cannabis industry responding to the call um, of the public sector due to COVID, I think we're going to see them do, we're, we're going to see benefits long term for that. So that, that that's one of the things for the marketplace. And we're going to see, and we lay on to that consumers are going. Consumption uh, increases and reducing stigma, reducing it rhetorically intensifies itself in a good way. 
Now, at the same time, we're going to see, I think we're going to see a lot of M&A in general as a number of the companies, larger companies, just couldn't write their balance. And some of the things that they would have had to do to write their balance sheet in this COVID environment is actually more challenging, right? The sale of assets would be more difficult. So the burn on underperforming or non-performing assets kind of continues. So they're, they're going to be hurting. And I could see that some that there'll be a number of assets will start to trade as we come out of lockdown and we'll see new players. Generally, I also think that the investor preference is not going to return to where it's been. I think investors are going to be really focused on operational performance rather than acquisition of some sort of proxy of national market share, which I yeah. think was yeah. driving investors. Now it's going to be bottom line. It's going to be fundamentals. Investors are going to be looking at going to be looking at superb operators. We're going to see, I hope, we will see two things, low-cost ninja producers, guys that can produce to standards that are required by important regulations, but are able through their skills to produce at a lower cost. Obviously, they're going to be rewarded. Some of the bells and whistles will go away. I think less and less people will think they need to have dispensaries look like Cartier shops, because that was always sort of an yeah. Yeah. Uh, nice. I mean, yeah. who doesn't like being in one of those? They're great. But I mean, come on, it is not fundamentals. I, I don't think we're going to go to like head shop looking things, but I think there'll be a rationality that will build that One area that I'm really interested in is we see sort of the reward for low, low cost production without sacrificing quality excessively. We'll then see investors start to finally maybe take a further step and, and the marketplace take a further step. And I think the marketplace already has in really blessing and rewarding the sort of high quality, smaller crap, ultra premium producers. I think they will. So, so I said, I think that the transition here into the future is going to be one of uh, a focus, investors focusing on quality of operations, quality mm-hmm. of products, as opposed to quantity of operation, which is what it was that what the previous 24 months were all about up until we got that sort of um, cash crunch yeah. funding, right? The investor worm has turned. They're no longer thinking, yeah, man, just get as big as you can. They're now thinking, yeah, man, show me that you can be sustainable and that you can really make things work. And it's not the end of the world either that the federal, another thing that we see, and I think important, very important, is like, well, what happened to the trajectory of federal yeah. love, right? Yeah. For, for yeah. Space. We saw the States Act, the Banking Act, obviously on hold. Who knows what happens in this election? Who knows what happens tomorrow. But I don't think those are coming. I don't think those are coming anytime soon. And that's a bummer because U.S. capital markets would be really great avenues for high-performing cannabis companies to be able to access. Mm-hmm. don't mm-hmm. think that's going to happen. Banking will remain a little bit of a challenge, but good news there. I think that these, the, more, the more intelligent banks that have been watching this space realize that the risk, right, the likelihood of, of federal sanction for participating, for banking, cannabis companies and quality regulatory environments is is exceedingly low. And so I think we'll see that irrespective of the of the banking bill not passing, we'll see some larger banks start to get into the space. And that'll be a good thing because that'll actually also drive down banking fees, which is another yoke that the cannabis industry has to bear. Yeah. So we'll see that irrespective. And then, you know, we'll still see without without federal legalization, we'll still see this experiment of the states happen. I mean, yeah, we won't get maybe 
the benefits of, of the types of supply chains that can focus cannabis to where it's most cheaply grown. But I don't know. I, I look at many crops come indoors in many states. They the microgreens and, yeah. and basil. They're, they're not they're growing indoors more and more. So I'm not so sure ultimately the agricultural consequences. But by the states continuing to evolve, there's a lot of upside, both from the public sector being able to look over each other's shoulder as states go, maybe to cooperate with regard to aligning regulation. I think these types of develop and, and then the industry responding in kind in these states and learning how uh, I think that that grand experiment of federalism will maintain, it will have to be maintained. And I think the good part about that is that it'll continue to inform what the contours of a uniform legal and regulatory approach may look like. Yeah. And what do you think for a company in the cannabis space right now, what, what would be your kind of areas of focus or suggestions, you know, of how they kind of handle the next six, 12 months in order to kind of get through this, get to the other side, be in a position of, you know, re- relative strength, uh, reasonable strength, given everything that's going on, so they can kind of take advantage of, of you know, what it sounds like, you know, is, will, will be a reasonably healthy market once we kind of get through all this. Yeah. All right. So the first first thing is in this, there is a lot of upside to be had and a lot of good to be done by listening to your regulators during this COVID period, right? During our, during our, what we're going to need to do to operate, listen to the regulators, work with the regulators, really embrace the spirit that's animating these regulators proactively. I think that will help generally the future, right? It'll buy a lot of goodwill. And I think we're seeing that. Keep up the good work, guys. That's one. Two, large cannabis companies are going to have to right-size their balance sheets. I mean, they're going to have to divest of underperforming assets or non-performing assets, which which raise a really interesting question. If you're an operator that's operating in some very successfully in some of the large adult use markets, as well as the medical markets, and you're under constraint, uh, in other words, the, 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 the escalator's off and the, the fire hose of capital is not there, what do you do? I, I think maybe what we what we may see and what might be intelligent to do is to balance away, even from some attractive medical assets, uh, reposition, recycle those assets and capital that can be used in expanding into the adult known or very likely adult youth market. Uh, so for all the placeholders that you might have out there, even if on an intra-state market basis, medical basis, you're doing okay with that. Uh, when you look at it across the balance sheet and you or same store it, right? It, you're with your with your adult use stuff, it's just it's gonna be a shade of the adult use. So maybe we should think about repositioning towards the most lucrative markets. And then of course, cost it's gonna be as much quality as as much quality as you can squeeze out of the lowest cost. If you're a cultivator, grams per square foot, and, unless you're maybe going it's gonna be key. I haven't seen the brands, you know, we 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 had different there, there was an interesting phenomenon is going to be are we going to see like a significant amount of brand loyalty emerge i'm not sure the data are there to support the idea that we're we do see a lot of brand loyalty extreme brand loyalty so that that does compel more uh, would compel a company into into thinking more about really lowering costs i think i think cost is a bigger driver for consumers than brand um except for maybe a few outliers and they know who they are so with the the, the we had we had a real focus on like brands for a while and and we will can need to continue to see a focus on brands but those brands are not going to be they're they're not going to obviate the need to primarily be driven by as low cost a quality play as you can be yeah it's going to be interesting i think we're as you mentioned you know that so, there's so many factors here in terms of what this uh, kind of coming out of covid looks like the pace of it you know 
know, how incremental it is, you know, to the extent that we've got kind of uh, future shocks to the system with reoccurrences and hotspots and stuff. But yeah, I, I think, you know, companies need to be prepared for several different possibilities, but making sure that they've got at least some strategies for how they're going to deal with these outcomes. And, you know, because a, a, we, a, we don't know, uh, B, you know, it's going to impact things and, and uh, you can't just have one, rely upon one particular strategy. But yeah, it's interesting. I think the cannabis space is an interesting one to look at in terms of just kind of overall economic impact of COVID and, and where it's going to go. Right, Bruce. I really do. I think that that, that that and cannabis could be actually a really interesting look here because it has had the public support through a crisis like this. So that public support, as we as we go through what might be this sort of oscillating future of relaxing and restricting in various places the amount of social access that can happen, the cannabis companies will be impacted in the how of continuing operations in each one of those, but like day-to-day operations, whereas other industries are going to, if they, you know, if other industries are going to be that are subject to actual closures are going to have to be figuring yeah, out exactly. the how of survival in periodic closures. Uh, so cannabis, cannabis could be really interesting because it's going to be durative, but it is going to have to respond to that sort of oscillating development until we get really on top of this virus. Yeah, yeah. Excellent. Hugh, this has been a pleasure. If people want to find out more about you, about the work that you do, what's the best way to get that information? They could go to uh, New Jersey. It's No one does this. www.newjerseycia.org. <laughs> I'll put the link in the show notes here so people can click through and get that. Yeah, like I said, this has been a pleasure. Great conversation. I know there's a lot of what ifs and uncertainty out there, but I think it was really good to kind of map this out. I think there were some interesting ideas and I think some logical sort of possibilities of how this is going to play out. I'll be curious to stay in touch with you over the coming months and quarters and see how this does play out and we can kind of check back on our conversation here and see what, what remained true and what changed. Uh, but I really appreciate the time today. It was really insightful and I appreciate it. I am delighted and uh, it's been an honor and a pleasure as always, Bruce. Take care. You've been listening to Thinking Outside the Bud with business coach Bruce Eckfeld. To find a full list of podcast episodes, download the tools and worksheets and access other great content. Visit the website at thinkingoutsidethebud.com. And don't forget to sign up for the free newsletter at thinkingoutsidethebud.com forward slash newsletter. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.